Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We are in a series called Fully. In this series on whole life stewardship, we are learning what it means to give every area of our lives fully to Jesus. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ryan Pate. And I'm Emily Pate. And we got married in 2020. Um, have three girls and five dogs, which is too many. The most important thing I think that I have learned for, about stewarding money well is to stick to a budget. Boy, that it was a contentious thing, and I think it's a scary thing, and it was before our marriage counseling sessions. Because, I mean, you had a spreadsheet. I had a spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. You try to enter everything right. It doesn't always work. But then when our counseling pastor showed us the program, you need a budget or YNAB. Um, and at first it seemed kind of ridiculous to start that version of the budget. And I don't want to have an advertisement for it, but you know, a budget that you pay for to keep for you seemed a little ridiculous, but we started it anyway because there was the free trial. And that's what we've gone with ever since because it, it keeps us accountable by keeping track automatically and separates everything and you don't get lost in spreadsheet formulas that might not update from month to month and it's just, I don't know, it's its pretty fantastic. Well, and the budget also helps to account for those things that are unexpected. Mm-hmm. So when those things that are unexpected happen, whether it be an appliance that breaks or a, a vet bill that we need to pay, yeah. we know that we've been putting money aside for those things. So there's already a fund there. So it's not that um, last minute shuffle mm-hmm. that you have to figure out where does this money going to come from that we know we've already intentionally put aside money for this category so it will be able to be covered. Yeah. It so really, it just it gives you peace of mind. Yeah. It takes the fear out of the finances. I think that Jesus talks about money so much because it's so easy for us to get distracted and forget that everything that we have comes from him and it all belongs to him. And so he it, he talks about it as a warning to us to, so we don't get tripped up in that um, selfish desires that we can easily have. The most rewarding thing about stewarding money well is the opportunity to give generously mm-hmm. and to not have the pressures of wondering where the next um, the money's going to come from. The best thing about stewarding money well is is definitely the confidence in your finances. Continue to be grateful for these stories. Uh, I want to just share a story with you that has nothing to do with the message today. I'm sorry, but I introduced you to our dogs uh, a couple months ago, and I was sitting on the couch uh, this week, and I've just been watching them. They each get their own bone at different times, and they'll be chewing their bone, but then they'll want the bone that the other dog has. And so, like, if one of them goes and gets water, they leave their bone and they go grab that other one's bone. Right? It gotten so bad that our girl dog, she's very smart, she will go and get a toy from her little box thing, she'll bring it out, she doesn't actually want this toy, but she'll make the other dog jealous, so that that dog will then go get the toy so she can get the bone from that dog. So, it just seems like they can never really be content or satisfied with what they actually have. Uh, Like I said, sorry, that's a story that has nothing to do with what we're talking about today, which is money. If you're just joining us... Thank you. Yeah, a little delay there. All right. We are in a seven-week series called Fully. And if you're following on your notes, in this series, we're learning to give every area of our lives fully to Jesus. 
And the idea behind this is instead of seeing our lives as little separate pieces where God gets certain parts of them, if you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus' invitation is to give your whole life to him. He says to us, love me with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so we're learning in this series how we can give everything that we have, everything that we are to him. God owns everything, and therefore our job is to steward that for his glory. And so far, if you've been with us, we've looked at how to steward our our time, how to steward our minds, our relationships. Last week, we talked about stewarding our bodies, and today I'm going to talk about stewarding our money. Now, I'm surprised this is as full as it is if you knew we were talking about money because I got to tell you, when I hear people who don't want to come to church, I've heard this myself, top three reasons people don't want to come to church today, one of them has to be church just wants my money. I've heard this myself. They just want my money. And so I just want to get this right on the table right away. Here's the big idea of this whole message today. God doesn't want your money. He wants your freedom. We don't want your money. We want you to experience freedom financially. And Jesus knows one of the greatest hindrances to his followers experiencing freedom comes down to how we view and use our money. Now, you may know this if you grew up around the church. Maybe you don't know this, but Jesus talked about the subject of money and possessions more than any other subject. Of his 36 parables or so, 16 of them are related to this idea of money and possessions. But this might shock you. Never one time does Jesus ask for anybody's money. Actually, that's not true. There is one story where he asks to borrow a coin, and he does a little magic trick to teach us a lesson about paying taxes. But the best we know, he gave that back. Never one time does Jesus ask for anybody's money. And the question that it begs is why? Why would Jesus talk so much about money but never ask for it? I'll say it again. He doesn't want your money. He wants your freedom. Now, by the way, you know, at some point, experiencing freedom with our money is going to involve giving generously, but don't get those two things mixed up. Jesus doesn't want our money. He wants our freedom, and part of experiencing freedom is through giving, but we'll get to that. But if you're on your notes, here's the truth about money and why he talks about it. Money can add meaning to your life. It can, but it is not the meaning of life. And that is the danger each of us face. I love what Ryan and Emily alluded to there, right? You can get into this temptation of making the whole meaning of life about money. But if we do that, Jesus understands we'll become enslaved. We'll get into bondage when it comes to this money. But if we start to view money more as a means to an end instead of the end in itself, we can experience freedom both now and forever. Jesus would put it this way, real straight up in Luke 16, 13. He said, no one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. There's a line in the sand here, right? You've got to choose what you're going to make the end of your life, the goal of your life. You can't make it about money. Money is a means to an end, but it cannot be the end in itself. Otherwise, you will be held in bondage. So I just want to say to you, listen, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're joining us this morning, you don't have to listen to anything I say. You can just turn me off right now. But... If you have made Jesus your master, as that verse just said there, if you want to live a meaningful life, then we've got to figure out together how to not make money the end goal of our lives, but a means 
to a greater life both now and forever. And so this morning, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to talk about three myths that money tries to get us to believe. And then at the end, I want to get real practical about how we can experience freedom when it comes to our money. So if you haven't already, let me just invite you. Take your Bible. We're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's way back in the Bibles if you're just getting used to where things are. You can find this in the black Bibles that we provide in the seat underneath there on page 960. Now, I'm not going to get to that for a few more minutes here, so just keep it open there. I want to first talk about myth number one. If you're following on your notes, the first myth we need to address about money is the myth of mine. The myth of mine. Now, I've already talked about this in the very first week of this series. Emily even talked about it in that video we just saw, but it's worth being reminded of once again. If you're following on your notes, God is the owner And he trusts me as his steward. Again, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you don't have to listen to this. But if you're a follower of Jesus, God owns everything. He's the owner, and we're simply his stewards. Now, you'll see there's two parts to this first myth. You've got to get this settled in your mind. Uh, The first part is that God owns everything. The psalmist wrote it this way in Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let's just pause here. Every mountain, every stream, every continent, every everything belongs to the Lord. It doesn't get more clear than that. Now, why does it belong to him? Look at what verse 2 says. For he founded it on the seas. God is the creator. Everything that he created then belongs to him. He owns it. I was trying to think of an example of this. If you're using message notes, look down at the very, very bottom in the very small print, and you'll see this little thing that says, copyright Steve Patia 2023. Why is that there? Because it's mine. I own that. You can't use that without my permission. And God basically has copyrighted this whole planet. He says, this is mine. It belongs to me. But he doesn't just own the planet itself, right? He also owns everything in the planet, including every person who's ever been created. As verse one says, the world and all who live in it. God owns the planet and he owns me. This means God owns my house. God owns my car. God even owns those message notes that you're holding. They don't actually belong to me. And God owns my money. He owns it all. If you're following on your notes, everything comes from God, and therefore everything belongs to God. This is the first principle of ownership. God owns everything. Now, here's the second part of this principle, right? God then trusts us with this stuff. It's incredible. He's like, I own it, but now I'm going to entrust this to you to be used for my glory, for my purposes, for my kingdom. We talked about this in the very first work. Remember the week, remember the parable he tells in Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. It says, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. That's what Jesus has done, right? He's gone on a journey. He's returning one day, but in the meantime, he has entrusted his wealth to you and to me. Have you ever thought of your possessions this way? God owns them, and everything you have is simply on loan to you from him. He's entrusted them into your hands as a test, a test of our faithfulness to him. 
So I'll just say, how do you experience freedom in money? You've got to get this one down. You've got to get to the point where you can say, I don't actually own any of this money to begin with. All of it belongs to God, and he's entrusted me with that as an opportunity to bring him glory on this earth. Now, the second myth of money I want to address is the myth of more. You know where I'm going with this, right? This is the idea that the more stuff we have, the happier we will be in life. I've shared this a couple times before. It's probably my favorite illustration. John Ortberg wrote this, and I'm going to share it with you again. Here's what he, he says. Once there was a young girl whose parents took her to the shrine of the golden arches. There she saw an opportunity to buy a combination of food and a little toy that someone in a fit of marketing genius named the Happy Meal. The meal of great joy. May I have it, please? She asked her parents. I I gotta have it. I don't think I could live without it. No, her parents told her. The toy's not worth the money. It's kind of cheap. No, we're not gonna buy it. But you don't understand, she said. I want that Happy Meal more than I've ever wanted anything in my life. And if I get it, I'll never ask for anything again. Not ever. No more complaining, not from me. No more demanding. If you get me that happy meal, I'll be happy for the rest of my life. Now, this seemed like a good deal to her parents, so they bought it. And it worked. She grew up to be a contented, grateful, joyful woman. She lived with serenity and grace. Her life in many ways was hard. She married a man who turned out to be a louse. He abandoned her with three small children and no money. The kids were a disappointment too. They dropped out of school, sponged off her meager resources, and eventually left home without ever calling. Old age was hard because she'd been counting on the pension she had built up working for her company called Enron. (laughs) But she never complained because she had gotten the Happy Meal. She would often think, I remember what great joy I found in that meal. Just as she predicted, it brought her lasting satisfaction, and she was grateful for the rest of her life. And he goes on to say, now, does life ever work that way? You'd think that after a while, kids would catch on, wouldn't you? You'd think they'd say, you know, a happy meal never actually brings lasting happiness. So I'm not going to get suckered into that one more time. I'm not going to fall for that again. But it doesn't happen. When the excitement wears off, they need a new fix. They need a new happy meal. But they're never happy for long. In fact, the only ones that happy meals make happy is McDonald's. And then he says, I love this line, you ever wonder why Ronald McDonald wears that stupid grin all the time? (laughs) Billions of Happy Meals sold, that's why, right? Now, of course, kids would only be that naive. Only a kid would be foolish to think that a purchase like a Happy Meal would actually make them happy and content, or maybe not. Maybe the older we get, we just think of different Happy Meals that are going to make us happy. Maybe that story about my dogs actually did have a connection to this today, huh? Friends, all day long in this country, you and I are bombarded with messages that want to tell us two things. Number one, you should be discontent. Number two, contentment is just one purchase away for you. Later this afternoon, you're going to turn on the TV, and you know that advertising companies are paying millions of dollars to convince us of that. You're discontent, but if you buy this, you will find a happy meal that will last forever. Always the messages are telling us, buy me, use me, wear me, drive me, watch me. 
I mean, that new OLED TV, whew, that looks really good. And we sit there and watch them and go, yeah, I think that would make me happy. But the truth is, if you're on your notes, I think we know this, I think we do, more stuff never brings lasting happiness. In fact, sometimes it does the complete opposite. And this is what Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you're there, we'll pick it up in verse 6. He writes, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Will we? Now read verse 9 out loud on your notes there with me. He writes, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And he finishes in verse 10. Most of us know this verse probably. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Notice he doesn't say that money is evil. He says that when we make money the end goal of our lives, it's going to lead somewhere we don't want to go. Where? Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Too often today we get ourselves into bondage because we think that stuff is going to fill a void in our lives that only God can fill. We're not content. And we're told not to be content every single day. We are, to use Paul's Words here, not content with the things that God has provided for us. We want more. And I think when I see these things, I'll be happier. If I could just wear that or drive that or watch on that, then I'll experience a new level of happiness. We're told to go after the American dream. But what we discover is it doesn't actually lead to lasting happiness. I remember I learned this lesson at a very early age. I went down to Mexico on a mission trip when I was in high school, and we were literally serving people who were living in cardboard boxes. And I went down there going, oh, these poor people. They were the most joyful and generous people I had ever met. And I learned this lesson early on, like it's not about how much we have that brings happiness. It's about how we view what we have. But here's the problem today. It's so easy for us. It just takes one little plastic card and a signature. And we can pretty much bump up our standards of living, our standards of driving, our standards of vacationing, our standards of whatever. I'm as tempted as anybody in this room, right, to use that little plastic card to find happiness. But you know what the real cost is, friends, of of credit card debt? Did you know that on average, consumers spend 23% more money with credit cards than when they pay with cash? Credit card companies know this, and that's why they press so hard for us to sign up for their deals, right? I mean, 2% cash back. Amazing. It's like they're losing money on this deal. Well, Well, they're not, right? That's why these companies exist. They understand if you buy something on their card for $5,000 and you pay only the minimum, you're going to end up paying $15,000 for that same purchase. And they depend on those people to make their companies profitable. Do you know what they call people who pay off their credit card debt every month? I love this. Deadbeats. (laughs) Why? Because if you pay off your credit card, you're robbing them of the interest 
that makes their companies go. Now, let's just be honest. This is a really tough thing to talk about today because it affects so many of us. America is still listed as one of the richest nations in the world, and yet we're also one of the nations in the most debt. I did some research. The average debt load per person, not including mortgage, is over $34,000. Credit card debt. This is affecting every generation except Generation X and and the millennial generation are the most burdened by this. And what is the result? Proverbs 22, verse 7 tells us the result. The rich rule over the poor and the borrower is slave to the lender. We become enslaved to the debt and we can't find any way out. Now, I want to be careful here. There is some debt that we have no control over. A spouse who is divorced and left with very little, a medical procedure that piles up hospital bills, a natural disaster, and so on and so forth. Again, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about this myth that if I could just have more, then I would be happy. And what we discover is actually we find ourselves in bondage. Buying into this dream that more stuff equals more happiness. But for so many, this dream turns into a nightmare. If you're following on your notes, the dream of more leads to bondage, not freedom. Now, I'll come back to what I said in the beginning. God wants your freedom, not your money. And he knows that making the stuff of this world your end goal is only going to lead to bondage. Final myth I just want to address is what I will call the myth of now. And what I mean is, if this world is all there is, then you might as well accumulate as much as you can. Right? Some of you might remember those t-shirts or bumper stickers from about 20 years ago. He who dies with the most toys wins. Do you guys remember these? I mean, listen, I guess. If, that, if this life is all there is, the 70, 80, 90 years, whatever it is, then you might as well accumulate as much as you can because that's, quote, winning in our culture but not for the follower of Jesus. Paul addresses this myth later in 1 Timothy 6. I'm going to pick it up in verse 17. He writes, Command those who are rich in the present world, pause, 95% of Americans would be included in this category. Not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Now read verses 18 and 19 out loud on your notes with me. Paul writes, Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Notice two things. Number one, God does not say we can't enjoy life here and now. We can enjoy life here now. Like I said in the beginning, money can add meaning to our lives. It's just not supposed to be the meaning of our lives. The second thing he says is none of the stuff on this earth is going to last. So why not invest in what is going to last? Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 6, familiar verses, right? Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. What he's saying is pretty practical. Like 
All the stuff that you're accumulating right now, you know where it's going to end up? In the junkyard. In your garbage can. The most amazing clothes, the most beautiful cars, the most incredible homes, one day will all end up decomposing somewhere in a junkyard. He who has the most toys wins nothing except the bigger garbage can. I remember when I was in uh, middle school, uh, I really wanted a pair of Jordans, like really bad. And so I started saving money. I was a newspaper. I, I delivered newspapers. I saved all my money up. And I could finally afford a pair of used Jordans. And my life was fulfilled. You want to know where those Jordans are now? They're still at home in my... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> They're decomposing somewhere. Now, I want to be clear here. Was it wrong for me to save up to buy those Jordans? Absolutely not. Is it something that I could enjoy? Absolutely. But I can't make that the end meaning and goal of my life. The next pair of Jordans is just not going to satisfy. All the stuff that we acquire is going to be gone. The junkyard always wins. Because if you're following on your notes, nothing in this world will last. And so Paul's advice, Jesus' advice is, why not invest in what's going to last? Why not adjust the way you spend your money in a way that will reap eternal rewards for you instead of temporary ones? Why not store up treasures in heaven that no junkyard can ever take away from you? Now, if that's interesting to you, the next question becomes, well, how do I do that? How do I invest in things that matter for eternity? And in my mind today, there's other things we could talk about, but I just want to talk about three ways that you can begin to invest in eternity and experience the kind of freedom that Jesus wants us to experience. Just like last week, this might get a little awkward. I'm going to get very practical here. You're like, we don't talk about this kind of stuff at church. We talk about this kind of stuff at church because we don't want your money. We want your freedom. And we know that money is one of the primary ways that can keep us from experiencing freedom. So let's get practical. The first step to freedom is, number one, to name your reality. We've got to recognize and understand, where do I stand when it comes to my financial situation? Some of you are like, duh. But others of us, and I'm one of them, are like, I just prefer to put my head in the sand and let things take care of themselves. But if we want to experience financial freedom, at some point, we've got to look at our finances and go, okay, here's where we find ourselves. Listen, you can wander into debt, you can stumble into debt, but you can't wander and stumble out of debt. You've got to name reality if you want to be free from that kind of bondage. Many of you know here, whenever we talk about money at our church, we want to be as helpful as possible. So you can see on the back of your notes, if you turn back there, We've listed several resources for you to help on this one as you start to name reality. One of them, I'll just highlight, if you, if you click on that uh, QR code, it'll take you to our webpage that has a debt reduction worksheet. You can find that pretty simply. And this is a tool to name your reality. That's all it is. What are my debts? How much do I owe? How can I start going after them? So let's look at just a quick example of this. This is a, a kind of a dumbed-down version of it. I'm going to have up on the screen here, okay? So this is what you'll go to if you need this, if you need to name reality. And I'm just going to walk through real quick how something like this 
works. So look at picture here too. Here's what you do to name reality. You got to list all the debts you have from the smallest to the largest. So that's what I've done there, right? I love that Sears is still up there, even though they're bankrupt now. (laughs) Then you put your interest rates next to that debt. So you can see that person has done that. Then you list how much you still owe on those debts. You can see that. Keep going. Then list the minimum payment you've got to make for each month. Then here's what we do. You take whatever extra income you've been paying to all the other debts, and you apply them all to the smallest first debt. And this is where the magic starts to happen. Once you pay off that first debt, you take all the money for that first debt, and you go after your second debt. And then you take all that, and you go after your third debt. This is called the snowball principle. Some of you are familiar with this, but just like a snowball going down a mountain gathers momentum, you start to gain momentum being able to pay off your debts. For some of you, you're looking at this and like, this is beyond me. I need more help. Great, we're here to help. You'll see still on the back of your notes that we have two classes coming up that we want to help you with. The first one is Financial Peace University. Some of you are familiar with this, with Dave Ramsey. Here's what I want to say to you. One of the inhibitors for people taking this class has been the cost in the past. It costs a lot of money to take FPU, which is kind of weird. So we're paying for it. We want to offer it to you. If this is something you would like to do, we want to offer it to you for absolutely free. Nine weeks, I will tell you, if you're looking for financial freedom, this is a great opportunity for you. If you're ready for maybe just a little reminder or you just need like a one-day type thing, we're also offering that. We have someone generously giving their time up from our church family who is willing to meet with you and walk through your financial situation with you. We don't have any ulterior, ulterior motives here. We really don't. We just want you to be able to experience freedom. Now, here's the thing. It's not easy to admit you need help. Because it brings up feelings of shame and guilt and maybe even some fear like like me, right? I just want to keep my head in the sand. But ask anyone who's done it, who's gone through FBU. I see some people nodding their heads very vigorously here, right? Anybody who's gone through these classes are like, it's worth it. It's worth being free from the bondage that money can sometimes have. Number two, this is closely related to the first one, is you need to make a plan and commit to follow it. The word for this is budget. You heard Emily joke about that in the video, right? It's not a very popular word in our culture. But every family, every business, every individual, every church, every country, every church needs a budget. If you don't like the word budget, then just substitute spending plan. Sounds better, doesn't it? And basically all it is, is I'm going to start telling my money where to go instead of wondering where it went. We've included an example of a budget on our website. Again, if you've never gone through this, it's a great opportunity. Both of these classes are going to teach you how to make a budget. There are digital budgets out there as well. My wife and I use one called Good Budget. But the key question you must ask when forming a budget, number one, is how much do we need to live on? How much do I need to live on? Get that answer, right? I would encourage you to think of that more in terms of percentages than like an amount of money. Most financial advisors, Christian financial advisors would say, think in terms of living on 70 to 80% of your income. 
then put away about 10 to 15% for saving, and then you have 10 to 15% for giving. Did you know that the average American lives on 120% of their income? I am no mathematician. Not my strong suit, but something doesn't work there. Right? So get a plan. Think about in terms, here's what we could live with and be content with. Set aside some for saving and then set aside some for investing in opportunities. And that's what I want to get into last. Finally, if you want financial freedom, start investing in your eternal portfolio. I like what Paul said about this, right? Be rich in good deeds and be generous and willing to share in this way. You will lay up treasure for yourself as a firm foundation for the coming age so that you may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Here we go. I knew Jesus wanted my money. I knew the church wanted my money. Uh, Nope. Jesus wants your freedom. Jesus wants your joy. Both now and in eternity. And nothing will bring more joy and freedom than beginning to open up your hands and investing in things that have a lasting impact. You know, I used to hear the saying when I was a kid, it's better to give than to receive. And I would say to myself, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. But as we get older, as we mature, is this not true? I get way more excited on Christmas than seeing the, my kids or my wife open up the gifts that I've given to them than I do about receiving anything. And in the same way, I, I just want to get you to believe when we start opening up our hands and giving to things, especially that make a kingdom impact, the joy we can experience now and in eternity will never be taken away from us. Here, I'm going to start talking about some technical things people don't like Talk about, number one, a tithe. A tithe just means 10%, and it's spoken about all the way in the beginning of the Bible with Cain and Abel. It goes all the way through Abraham. It goes all the way into the New Testament. Jesus talks about a tithe. A tithe is simply saying, I'm going to set aside my first fruits, and I'm going to give them to the Lord. They belong to the Lord. I'm giving 10% of what I have to God. Again, if you're not a follower of Jesus... You don't have to listen to this. But if you're a follower of Jesus, this is a starting place for us. The Bible also talks about offerings, tithes and offerings. Did you know that Jewish people probably gave about 30 to 40% of their income away to tithes and offerings? Now, I'm not saying that that's where you have to get to, but I am saying is the more we recognize that money can have a hold on us, the more we got to fight against that and open up our hands. Again, if you're not a follower of Jesus, don't worry about this. But if you are a follower of Jesus, I'm going to say something radical to you. This start will be one of the most life-changing things you could do. God put it this way in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. That's a pretty amazing verse. It's the only verse in the Bible where God says, put me to the test. And come and find out 
If you commit to this, see what happens. See what opening up your hands in generosity will do. Now, friends, what I'm not talking about here, what that verse is not talking about here is the false gospel that's preached sometimes on TV, right? Like, if you give to this, you're going to be rich. If you give to our church, I'll send you a signed copy of my message notes today. And you'll have greater blessing. No, it doesn't work like that. I don't think there's been more harm done to the gospel of Jesus in this country than those kinds of things, right? But what God does promise is you can never outgive him. You can never outgive him. God will reward you one way or the other, either now or in the world to come. And one of his rewards is that one day you will get to see the investments you've been making face to face, right? And we just prayed for the Fowlers this morning. Just think about this. Number of people were just baptized in a river in Ethiopia. And we'll all be there who give to this church being like, I was a part of that. What greater joy, what greater opportunity than to see that my gifts have gone to help people come into a relationship with Jesus. Right Above tithing to the church, I hesitate saying this, but my wife and I give above and beyond that. We, we support two World Vision kids. I can't wait to meet these two girls one day. Stand with them in heaven and be like, that was worth it. That was worth investing in. I give to International Justice Mission. It's a cause I really believe in, right? Fighting against sex trafficking. Helping women, especially young kids, getting back on their feet on the road to success. A pair of Jordans can't compare to that. God doesn't want our money. He wants our freedom and he wants our joy. And what better way to experience joy than to open our hands and invest in eternity in the things that really matter. Friends, if money could talk to you right now, it would say to you, I'm a means, I'm not an end. I'm a tool. I can add meaning to your life, but don't get confused. I'm not the meaning of your life. One day money will fail and the Bible is clear. You can't take it with you but you can send it on ahead. And that's the good news. And so if you're following on your notes as we close, will I steward God's money as a means, not an end? Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, once again, these are difficult topics to address, to talk about. Sometimes they just feel so personal. But we believe you have the best intentions for us. And there's a reason you spoke about this so much. So we just take a moment now just to reflect on what we've heard today, to enter into personal prayer with you, laying it all on the table. What do you need me to see today, Jesus? reminded that in Christ there is no condemnation we have been set free so I pray against any guilt or shame or or fear that might exist here and I pray more for a spirit of excitement a spirit of opportunity 
and mostly as you desire a spirit of freedom and joy when it comes to money. For those of us who need to start naming reality, pray that we could commit to doing that. For those of us who really need to let go of what we're pursuing and invest in eternity, help us to believe that that is where true joy is found. You've given us a time here on this earth that doesn't even compare to the time we will have with you in eternity. Help us to steward the resources you've given us for your glory, for your name, for your kingdom. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church, visit our website or find us on Facebook. Have a great day.